Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My guest this week is the Conservative Member of the House of Lords and Chair of AJ Bell, Baroness Morrissey. Helena, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nathan. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, before we look at the government's response to COVID-19 and how it's handled the pandemic, I'd like to ask you about the Chancellor's spring statement this week. What did you make of what Rishi Sunak had to say? Well, I'm afraid it was rather underwhelming, I think, um, and also somewhat difficult to, to reconcile in terms of the talk and the actions. Um, obviously, there is some um, relief for national insurance um, for those uh, on low salaries. Um, we had a fuel cut duty, etc. But of course, there's also an increase in national insurance that's just about to happen and lots of other increases in prices, uh, cost of living in crisis, no less. And um, so I felt it should have been much more uh, pro-growth. It should have been bolder. Um, obviously, we have a high national debt at present, but sometimes, you know, we're in a kind of, we should be on a war footing, really, I think, with the government's finances. Um, now we need to uh, really encourage people to feel more confident than they currently do, that they can make ends meet um, and get out and about and, you know, it, it, trying to galvanise uh, economic growth, really. You mentioned there about how the Chancellor really should have pursued a, a growth agenda. So in doing that, in a hypothetical, let's say you're, you're the Chancellor, you're in Rishi Sunak's shoes, what would you have announced to try and ease the burden of the cost of living on people and to try and go for that method of getting people spending and really growing the economy that way? Well, I certainly would have scrapped the national insurance increase if mm. I had announced it before. Perhaps I wouldn't have got to that point because um, mm. I don't think it was a good idea. Um, I actually would have gone further in terms of, and, and obviously, again, I know that we want to have fiscal prudence, we want to make sure that we can pay back the debt. But I do think we should have gone further in terms of cutting the tax burden um, and also offering households more help with the cost of living, you know, 5p off fuel uh, per litre when it's, you know, so expensive and we, we, do, we seem to have no end in sight in terms of energy uh, price rises. So I, I just think we needed to have more help. And he's promised or said that they would have a 1p cut in income tax during this parliament by 2024. But jam tomorrow is no good when people can't pay the bills. So I would have done it sooner and, and I would have taken the risk. I would have really been very focused on selling the message that actually we can afford this. The most important thing when you have a huge debt burden as a country is to be able to grow your way out of that. And you mentioned there the, the 5p fuel duty cut and the uh, 1p uh, cut in income tax as well. And yes, they are smaller measures, probably more short term measures, but 
realistically, do you think they'll make a real difference to people who are already starting to struggle in, in this cost of living crisis? Well, no, that's the, that's the problem. I think it's just mm. peripheral. It's, um, you know, gave people a little bit. And, and remember as well, he's had the, the benefit of inflation somewhat helping the, the nominal value of the debt. And so he had a basically a £50 billion windfall this fiscal year, which he could have spent back Um I'm not, I mean, I'm a conservative um, and I'm not a sort of high tax, high, high spend, um, you know, let's have a big state um, mm. person. But I do think at present, you know, we need to make sure that we are throwing everything we can at it. I do think the Bank of England's wrong as well to be raising interest rates at this juncture, yeah. because frankly, when you've got inflation that's really baked into the system because of energy price rises and things that have happened way before now, then yeah. increasing mortgage interest payments mm-hmm. also is just a toll around people's necks. It doesn't really help. We're not we're not yeah. running away with the economic growth, and that's not causing inflation. Um, it's because of some of the problems that we've seen, particularly mm-hmm. obviously exacerbated by the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Yes, and the war between Russia and Ukraine is being blamed in large parts for the rising cost of living at the moment because of the sanctions package and because of that divestment from Russian oil and gas and other energy supplies. But even though the the prices were going up before uh, President Putin launched that full invasion, do you think in placing so much blame on this war, the government is being somewhat disingenuous with the public in explaining how we ended up in this situation. Well, look, let's, let's be slightly kinder and say, actually, we've had a, mm. obviously a series of difficulties, you know, as they say, the series mm. of unfortunate events and clearly the pandemic that we're going to go on to talk about, which is, you know, we've had lockdown almost two years ago to the day was first introduced. Yeah. That clearly has had a massive impact, um, both economically on the government's finances and obviously people's well-being and, and, and sort of confidence, I guess, about the future and their future employment. So that is obviously less uh, weakened things and cast a very big, sh- long shadow. The war uh, situation obviously has just been like the last thing anyone needed. Obviously, humanitarian disaster, uh, first and foremost, but it comes at a big economic cost as well. And we have a lot of fragility, to say, in the economy already. And that's why I think, you know, there's no two ways about it. You can't just sort of like hope and sort of think we'll just do a few things around the edges and we'll somehow get through this. I think it needed a big, bold, ambitious, confident sounding package of measures um, that will make people actually sit up and think, actually, you know what, we're going to make our way through this. I, I completely agree with you there. And just to look at some of the circumstances that are happening within the economy at the moment. And when we look at what the economic outlook is, we've got the highest tax burden since the 1940s. We've got our national debt at over £2.6 trillion. As we've been mentioning already, the cost of living is soaring. The university tuition fee repayment rate is rising as well. And to take that all into account, we've got a housing crisis for good measure. So when we're looking at all of this, what can young people in particular aspire towards when the, the outlook is so poor at the moment? So, I mean, I, I would introduce at this stage the, the fact that I have nine children um, aged between 13 and 30. So when the pandemic started, um, you know, take a couple of years off and the birthdays, summer hadn't happened. So, you know, between 10 and 28, basically, at the time of the pandemic. Um, and several have gone through university through the pandemic to sat their finals remotely um, because it was locked down. So, and then obviously those two have been searching for jobs um, and so have their friends. So I completely understand it. I'm not in that position, but I really see it very close to hand, you know, just how difficult that is. And I, and I would urge you, try not to um, get obsessed with the, the news all the time. Yeah. Try to think very carefully 
about the things that you can control, not all the things that are way beyond um, your remit, your ability to control, because it can be extremely overwhelming. And it can end up people feeling, I mean, obviously we see a massive rise in mental health issues, particularly among young people. Uh, and, and I completely understand why, but the only way I think to really um, you know, have some confidence at this stage is to take one step in front of the other and to try and do what you can do, whether that's uh, take a course where online doesn't have to cost a fortune, whether it's to ask if, uh, somebody for help who might mentor you or open a door, um, whether it's go back and ask for, you know, your uh, school teachers for their help and um, ideas, um, talk to adults, uh, really to, to try to step back from the huge morass of terrible news, um, which I think can make people just give up just thinking about it um, and, and just to focus on what you can control um, and if you can't control very much then try to work out how you can improve that span of control and really you know uh, try to get some not by yourself some time because I know how difficult it is to live if you haven't got a job um, when I graduated you know it wasn't my parents are teachers it wasn't an option but to get a job um, and that was before one had student debt so I completely get it it's just try not to let yourself be overwhelmed by this avalanche of bad news okay well, well that's some great advice there and uh, i'm sure many of our listeners will take that away <laughs> particularly about uh, the idea of uh, doing courses as well I, th- I think you know improving your uh, employability prospects as well can be really mm-hmm. crucial particularly at the moment but in looking at ways to try and resolve the, this cost of living crisis we're in at the moment you were one of the first people in, in the city and within the financial sector to come out in favor of the uk leaving the eu so do you think the Chancellor is using enough of these so-called Brexit dividends to try and ease the burden many are feeling at the moment? No, I mean, sadly, we have not yet really um, utilised the freedoms that um, are theoretically within our grasp. And I know that a lot of people listening will be very sceptical about Brexit and so forth. And, and I understand at this point, because we, we left, obviously we had hardly, well, it took us so long to leave. By the time we got there, we had the pandemic. And obviously there's been a lot of distractions since. Um, there are some things that are a bit technical and dry, but there are some things which are starting to um, be worked on. So, for example, the insurance industry, which might not be the most exciting one as far as or young people are concerned, but um, has started to uh, there's started to be reform around something called solvency two, which is you know how much capital they have to keep on their balance sheet. Sounds very dull and dry, but actually, if you don't have to put aside so much money um, on your balance sheet, then you can use that money for productive growth hire some more people, for example. Um, so we're just starting to see that, but I just worry at this stage that there hasn't been enough um, focus of, on that. I, again, I get it because, uh, you know, you said, what if you were the chancellor? Clearly it's somewhat of an unenviable position at present, but I do think that there should be much more, again, boldness, um, you know, really charge, charging people with coming up with the, uh, you know, actual steps to take to make the most of um, our freedoms now. And the fact that when we want to do something, for example, in the finance sector, where I'm from, we now don't have to negotiate with 27 other parties, we can just decide to do it. English law, it's not an argument that was made very often in the Brexit debate, but English law is very permissive, allows people to do things, allows companies to do things until it's not allowed. Whereas the law that they use in the EU is actually forbids everything until it's expressly allowed. So if you are an entrepreneur, if you're an innovator, if you're you know a tech um, entrepreneur, then it's much better to have a, a legal system like ours. Um, but again, we have been very cautious, very slow, and we need to seize that, that opportunity. 
Well, let, let's tr- move away from some of the, the economic stuff and the, the spring statement. And let's look at lockdown, the curved restrictions. We've just marked uh, two years since that first lockdown happened. Do you think overall the government has done well in tackling COVID-19? No, I actually think that um, with hindsight um, and if there was a really sort of clear review of everything that had happened and policy decisions taken, it'll look like a very big policy failure or set of policy failures. Um, I completely understand why we locked down two years ago. I think we had very little knowledge about the virus. There was a lot of anxiety that it was, you know, universally affect everybody, whatever their age, whatever their health. Um, and it was very scary, I think. And I, so I could have a lot of sympathy with the government's decision then to lock down and to gather, gather more evidence. But I think um, as the evidence amounted and it became clear that there were lots of other risks to contend with, as I mentioned already, young people's mental health, school children not being able to go to school, uh, university students not being able to go to university, um, obviously a lot of other illnesses like cancer and heart disease, mounting up undiagnosed um, and people suffering economically, um, then we should have been much more sort of even about assessing the risks. Um, And the second and third lockdowns, I think particularly the third um, and all the restrictions since uh, will prove, I think, if we can ever prove it. Um, So that's a big question mark, of course, but to really not not to have been the right approach. but as I say, I, I mean, I, I have sympathy with the first step and I would caution as well. I, I'm not somebody who I think you should, you, you know, there's not much benefit from looking back and blaming everybody. And yeah. we should be looking forward at this stage and, and making sure that never happens again, that people's yeah. freedoms are not constrained um, in the same way. And the first lockdown, it, it raises quite a, an interesting idea around what the, the powers of the prime minister and the executive really are. And it's quite a, a technical point, but... In Boris Johnson's televised address when he announced the the lockdown that evening on the 23rd of March, it was only on the 25th of March that the Coronavirus Act, which facilitated that and enabled it, was was actually passed. So essentially, we had two full days where we were all mandated to stay at home solely on the word of the prime minister and from the government. So do you think that could potentially set quite a, a dangerous precedent for future governments and future prime ministers, should there, hopefully not, but should there be another major crisis on this scale, which does require an immense expansion of the state and the, the suspension of many civil liberties? Well, I'm afraid you're completely, you know, it's an absolute nail on my head um, with those comments. And that's one of the reasons why I was so concerned about the policy actions taken, because um, it wasn't just that it didn't go to, through proper scrutiny in the House of Commons, but these bills, you know, we we debated on them. And in fact, I gave my maiden speech on the Coronavirus Act. Um, I think it was in the October of 2020 um, when it came up for renewal. And it, and it was all after the fact. I mean, there was nothing mm. really that could be done. Um, there wasn't proper parliamentary scrutiny. Um, and I and I worry that, you know, people got have got used globally, not just in the UK, obviously, but to being somewhat you know, the fear factor that there really was a project fear, I think, put in place so that people actually, um, you know, got used to being told what to do um, in a way that I think is very dangerous for um, liberties going forward. And within this project fear, almost, the the government used what it calls its behavioural insights team or a a nudge unit, as it's been uh, known, to to try and influence the way people are thinking through PR campaigns and um, messaging services, whatever it may be. But again, following on from this point about setting dangerous precedents, you know, should the states really have the power to essentially control the, the population's behavior in such a way? 
No, I mean, I think when people vote for um, a government, they certainly, you know, they, they know that if there was an emergency, then the government would step up and, um, and put some measures in place. But I don't think you can describe something as an emergency when it drags on for two years. You know, there's clearly, and, it, and given the evidence, I mean, if, if it had been something like Ebola, um, where the death rate, the mortality rate is about a third, I understand it, and obviously causes devastating birth defects. And I'm not diminishing, please don't anyone mm. think from listening to me that I'm diminishing the impact of coronavirus mm. on people who obviously um, suffered losses um, in their family or, you know, had terrible things happened, you know, in terms of the impact of long COVID and so forth. So I'm not in any way trying to diminish it, but we did learn that the average age of people who died from COVID was you know, 82, and uh, younger people tend to have comorbidities, other other illnesses. So I think in these circumstances, it's very hard to justify that uh, range of powers that the government, frankly, bestowed upon itself. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does raise some certainly interesting questions. And in this sort of expansion of the states that we had, it's it also influenced the economy as well, primarily through the coronavirus job retention scheme, or again, furlough, as many of us know it. And again, this is a completely new scheme, but it's quite shocking to hear the the Chancellor of the Exchequer say the government will step in and pay people's wages. I mean, Mm. certainly from my perspective as someone who's quite a a free market uh, believer and and thinker, it it takes quite a bit to rationalise that, that the states will pay people's wages. Do you think it did save the the many thousands of jobs that the Treasury is claiming? Or do you think actually for many people, it simply delayed the inevitable? Well, I think it, I understand again why it was done in an emergency. And I think that that was probably the sensible thing. If you're going to literally put the shutters down on business and say you can't operate, then, you know, the government has to take the other side of the coin. However, let's remember that the government's money is really our money. Yeah. It's taxpayers' money. It's not got some magic, you know, apart from printing it or kind of borrowing it. They haven't got any magic supply. And that's the problem why it is inevitably... Uh, a, a toll on the future and on people's uh, livelihoods in the future because you know that money has to be paid out from somewhere and so that's why the tax burden is rising you know it's not it's not just some sort of magic side of hand that you found this extra money so in the end we all poorer um because the economy was shuttered um it's just that i think you know what what was right about that was meaning that people who were you know, worked in restaurants and in mm. shops and, you know, that just had absolutely no say in the matter, um, you know, had the opportunity to get some money and, and survive during that period, which obviously I think is, is right. But it's it's just now we've, and because it extended for so long, um, because the restrictions were so long-winded, then obviously the burden now on everybody is much higher than it would otherwise have been. Yeah, and again, as as well as this economic impact, there were so many people, millions even, who were forced to work from home. And we know that's had a, a detrimental impact on many aspects of the economy. But from your perspective, working within the financial sector, to what extent was that damage to the economy? How extensive was the impact that that move had? Well, I think this one's, again, one of those ones that's quite hard to measure. But at the time, initially, I think people were quite surprised how well it worked, you know, that Mm. actually, you know, we managed to service, you know, client needs or customers. Um, People made some digital progress. You know, there were certain things when um, when people were saying, oh, we can't operate like that. We need to see, you know, proper signatures. And suddenly it all became, okay, we'll do it online. Um, So that, I think, um, initially was was favourable. But, of course, the longer it went on, the weaker relationships became, the less we have had the chance to collaborate. And as the 
uh, opportunities have gone uh, have risen to go back to work, uh, back to sorry, back to the office, I should say. It's clear that some people, uh, and perhaps more introverted people, perhaps people with family responsibilities who feel the pressure to to do that. Um, I felt reluctant in some way, to, as well as people perhaps who are nervous about the coronavirus still, they've been reluctant to go back. And I talked to someone the other day who's uh, very senior at a big bank, I won't name it, um, who said that they had issued an edict that people had to go back to the office um, at least three days a week. And actually about five months later, uh, between 30 and 40% of people had not gone back even for a single day. Um, and they just decided because the labor market was so tight, that they couldn't enforce it. And of course that means that forever we've lost this sort of camaraderie, but also those people, he said, the majority are, you know, women um, with families who, who might want to spend some more time at home, but perhaps feel really guilty now if they actually go into the office. And so we've kind of ended up going backwards on all of that a bit. Um, whereas what should be happening now is we should be thinking, you know, how can we get the best work done? How can we work most efficiently? Um, most productively so that everyone can, you know, doesn't have to trek in and to the commute five days a week, but, you know, go in enough so that we see each other make, you know, friends out of our colleagues and, um, and do those things around the edges of actual formal work. Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting uh, statistic there. there. There are many who have continued to work from home ever since the restrictions have lifted and, and so on. But do, do you think that's now reflective of a, a permanent change in our economy, that everything's gone on online more or less? There's so, much, uh, there's so many aspects and facets of our economy that are digital now. Do you think working from home is now a a permanent feature in the UK financial system and the UK economy, perhaps even the, the global economy. I do. I mean, I think I think there are certainly um, people who just don't like it at all, and who, um, for whatever reason, and or else, you know, this is um, you know, especially true of young people. I think you know, you don't necessarily have a nice sort of home to work in and want mm. to go in and learn from their colleagues and be somewhat mentored. And so, in fact, my daughter, who I would who'd done her finals remotely, who did eventually get a job having taken sort of enforced gap year and done some courses. She, she ended up working every single day in the office throughout it all basically. And um, it was intriguing because some days it was just her and the CEO, I think, (laughs) you know, but she said, Oh, I'm never going to learn if I sit at home. So I think it is a permanent feature, but I would encourage people to, you know, once they get that job that they love, not to just fall in line with whatever the pattern of work is, conventionally at that point but to work out what works for you in terms of making the you know most of the opportunity and also contributing the most yeah and of course it wasn't just adults who had to work from home we've mentioned it uh, earlier it was young people too with the school college university closures do you think it was right to close those educational settings well i i i really don't i mean i think there's still very little evidence that um uh you know, teachers would get sick from children, you know, and uh, it's, it's not been proven from anything that I've seen that actually children would have posed a risk to um, adult staff. Um, but again, I understand the first time around, uh, I think as it went on longer, and I've heard from people who tell me that even now, uh, this is university students, that yeah. a lot of the courses are still run online. Yeah. I know that application, you know, interviews for certain universities are done online. Um and that just seems like, well, why are you doing that? Because there's so much to be said for in-person interaction for actually being humans. <laughs> you know, actually, I think we're just sociable characters, most of us anyway. And you really enjoy, you know, those interactions. You get to know each other in a different kind of way. So um, 
I think that's a great shame and very hard to rationalize or yeah. to explain. Yeah. And, and you've, you mentioned there that you, you have got nine children, so you've of all varying ages. So you've probably got a, a better idea than many about how different aspects of the education system adapted to lockdown. Mm. So what, what was life like in your home when you, your children and you were managing working and learning from mm. home and trying to find that balance? Well, that first lockdown, uh, exactly two years ago, we were 13 people in our family at that point because my eldest daughter came back from America where she was living with her husband and two children who were very small, a baby and a two-year-old at the time and came to live with us just because Mm -hmm. they were, you know, worried about being sort of stuck in America. So um, it was, I mean, it was very full on. And obviously there was, everybody had their own issues of dealing with um, uh, difficulties, um, mental yeah, as well as physical. And I, I mean, I look back on it and I think in lots of ways, it was a big opportunity for resetting family life. And we mm. were lucky we could go to somewhere where, you know, we had a garden and we could sort of, the weather was nice, we could eat outside most days. So it wasn't too much um, on the domestic side, but I was literally at that stage, I was between jobs and I was running down from basically from interviews. Um, whatever stage you are in life, you're mm-hmm. still doing, you know, sort of <laughs> trying to make your way. Um, shoving clothes in the washing machine and doing conference calls, you know, the ones that weren't videos uh, uh, while ironing, you know, there was kind of like, there was never enough hours in the day. And I just found I was working longer hours to get through it really. Um, And I know that my experience was much shared by, by everybody, whatever Mm -hmm. their family size and so forth. And through the, the school, college, university closures, there's been thousands of hours of teaching and contact time, just, just simply, lost and we know already from initial data there are over 135,000 children who just simply never returned to education after lockdown and of course that that number sadly is expected to rise so how do you think the the impact of the pandemic on young people should be rectified do you think it's all on educational institutions or do you certainly for the catch-up program or do you think the private sector should have more of a role in creating more opportunities for young people and uh, facilitating new schemes or opportunities for uh, children and young people to get involved with to help schools? Well, I did hear, I've forgotten the name of it now, but a a fantastic presentation about a tutoring um, programme that's been set up for state school pupils who I think lost out most bad, you know, most of Mm. all, um, and um, so I heard about it actually at the Party Conference last, um, I guess it was last year when I was speaking at a couple of events. And this programme, they've, they've measured the impact on the children who've gone through it. And it's, you know, after a term's tutoring, they have kind of one or two lessons a week. They have caught up. Um, often it's really quite amazing. Um, but obviously that sounds like it's impossible to do at scale. And what was impressed about this program was that they were doing it at scale. So it was, it was a collaboration between private sector and um, so this enterprise set it itself up, was being funded through some government money. Um, but I need to, I'm afraid I need to catch up with how far it's progressed since then. But I was impressed and I was, um, I thought, wow, this is because uh, otherwise it seems such a huge uh, backlog of learning, as you say, and such a, a vast number of children that have been affected. I do think, you know, we can probably catch up educationally through some of those interventions. Um, but the, me- the mental toll, I think, of, you know, teenagers being lonely, um, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, p- children who are from homes where perhaps they suffer abuse or there isn't enough to eat or, you know, just absolutely 
tragic, really. And I just think it's going to take its toll for many years to come, I'm afraid. Again, I completely agree with you there, particularly about children from disadvantaged backgrounds. And again, something that we had uh, quite a lot of before lockdown and pre-pandemic era was that there were a lot of work experience and internship opportunities, which, again, post-pandemic, there seems to be far fewer of. I've certainly noticed when I've been looking. So do you think companies and workplaces do need to put an additional focus on creating these sorts of opportunities, especially for children from disadvantaged backgrounds and and indeed for others like university graduates looking for uh, career ideas or opportunities and use that as an additional program in addition to what they do for recruitment? Totally. I mean, I think that the, again, going back to what Chancellor should have said in the spring Mm. statement, I would have loved to see a real focus on encouraging companies to do this. I think companies can still do it by themselves, but I think there should have been more focus um, on, you know, some tax breaks for companies that are taking on a certain number of internships, a focus on future skills, a focus on apprenticeships. Um, I do see that this, um, I mean, there are some schemes that are still out there or have been launched relatively recently. Um, so 10,000 black interns is one that's well known. Um, and that started off as 100 black interns. And then they found that companies were so keen that it obviously has grown exponentially. Um, uh, I chair something called the Diversity Project and we run a program called Upreach, which is designed specifically for students from a lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And um, every year for the last three years, we've put through about a hundred students. They, they get work experience, mentoring, help with trying to find an internship and a permanent role but you need to we need to explode that you know we need to have Mm. every company saying i'm um of a certain size obviously you know we're going to take 10 interns or five if they're smaller and that way we would solve this i mean we would solve it certainly much more quickly than if everybody Mm. is a little bit selfish and says Mm. we're going to only have people who are qualified and can you know add value the day that Mm. they start um my daughter who i mentioned she benefited from a program called GAIN, Girls or Investors. It was nothing to do with me, how she got it. She just Googled everything and she had applied for a lot of um, programs and they run this program specifically around trying to attract women into finance. Um, And this year they've got 125 students on the internships um, and companies, you know, outsource a lot of this to this firm, um, GAIN. Uh, Look it up if you're a woman listening, because it's, it's really, I think, this sort of very targeted program that people feel actually I'm not the only one like me that might want to work in this area. Um, And particularly if you don't know what to do, you know, there are these programs um, where you can find out a bit about it. Mm. You don't have to commit um, and find out if you enjoy it. So yes, we just need more of it. And I think that's what growth and the future of the nation, which is all about young people, helping them to recover from the pandemic and helping them Mm. get a job. That's where our focus should be as a country. And one of the other aspects of lockdown that's really increased, particularly regional disparity as well, was the tier system. Just as as an example, in Greater Manchester, where where I live, our area after the the first lockdown was effectively in a lockdown from October 2020 until Freedom Day in July 2021. So again, do you think when we're, we're looking at the impact of lockdowns and various restrictions, do you think there should be a greater focus on the impact that tier system had on so many communities and businesses especially? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't, don't recall seeing all, any focus on this in the levelling up white paper mm. that the government published, you know. So we need to have, I think, it, you know, again, I mean, you just said it very mm. clearly and I would agree entirely. Um, the areas where there was, there was most limit on economic activities, education deprivation etc 
clearly there should be more um, emphasis on those regions um, in terms of aid, but also in terms of, you know, the government, the, sorry, the companies in those areas and helping them to, to participate. Um, you mentioned actually that I'm chair of AJ Bell and one thing that we do is an apprenticeship scheme. I think they've just recently won a, like an award for it, which isn't the point of me mentioning it. It's just that there's some of the best people that they have have come from this scheme, you know, um, so it's not it's not a sort of charitable act. It's like a really win-win for people. They have people who come on the scheme. In fact, I was up in Manchester earlier this week, met some of them um, who just joined, and you can see they're so enthusiastic. Uh, they were so willing to learn, and they've got so much to offer. Mm. It's a no-brainer. And one of the other measures that the government introduced, which you've been very strongly opposed to, was the NHS COVID pass, also known as the vaccine passport. Why were you so against this policy? Well, I think because, you know, clearly it was another major, major step. I mean, we got so used to being limited in our freedoms. And then the idea that basically you have to carry around papers around your medical um, status. And who knows, you know, first of all, there's the creep. You know, where does that end? People say, well, you know, have you had the measles vaccine? Have you had, the, you know, like there's a lot of once you've got people in that system. But most importantly, unfortunately, what we learned was quite quickly was that the um, you could still transmit the, the virus if you had the vaccine and you could still get COVID if you had the mm. vaccine. So if, of course, having the vaccine meant that you could never affect, infect anybody else, then there might have been some logic to it. But the fact that nobody believed that and yet they were still pushing it made me, I'm afraid, very suspicious that they had other reasons for introducing it. And they were kind of sweeping in under this sort of new auspices of, you know, we'll will control your lives. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I'm very glad, and I think the government did do the right thing in this regard. You know, the, some of the devolved nations obviously moved further um, on this and the, um, you know, white Westminster decided not to um, impose this um, apart from in certain venues and so forth. And that's obviously gone now. So um, I just think it was very dangerous and always through history, if you look at when people lost liberties, they didn't notice it at first and then it's too late and then very hard to get them back. Yeah. And, and the prime minister announced this measure on the, what he was calling Freedom Day back in July last year. And he announced this alongside mandatory vaccinations for COVID-19. Now, fortunately, you and many others fought against this. But of course, the, the vaccine passports were used in certain settings, as you, you said there. Yeah. But in creating that, that policy... Why do you think the government wanted to introduce such a, a blunt and unpopular instrument on a day which should have been hailed as being the end of restrictions? Well, I'm mystified, except for um, I think the kind of, you know, one explanation would be, and I'm not necessarily saying this was it, but they kind of got used to telling everybody what to do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think it has been um you know, quite difficult to rationalise some of the actions. You know, we, we were all, uh, 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 a slightly different question, but, you know, we were, when we were juggling with all the different restrictions and suddenly one day you could eat with six people and the next day you couldn't or the other way around. I mean, it was a very, it was a maze really, wasn't it? And you got that sense at one, some point, I thought they just want to have lots of rules for us. You know, they don't, um, and I don't think that's, I mean, I think if you took all these politicians away from that situation, I don't think any of them would say, actually, that's what I want. Mm. But they got a little bit mesmerized, I think, by it all and um, and nervous about getting it wrong and nervous, mm. obviously, about getting it wrong, particularly in terms of the public health issue. But of course, as we're talking about through this program, um, there are there are more public health issues mm. than COVID, yeah. um, mental health 
cancer, you know, um, children, babies being born and the mothers, you know, being completely on their own. A lot of things happened. Funerals, where nobody could go. Nobody could say goodbye to dying relatives. You know, a lot of things mm. happened. Um, and all I was arguing really was proportionality mm. um, and balancing up of the different things that were happening in our lives. Yeah. And I attended a panel discussion, which was hosted by Big Brother Watch, which you were speaking on at the yeah. Conservative Party conference back in October. You were there with uh, Steve Baker, Chris Green and Sir Graham Brady, who've all been past guests on this show. And you said something that that really struck me, actually, at, at that event. And you, you alluded to it before in one of your earlier answers. You said that it was the fear which was instilled in people that made us vulnerable to further freedoms being taken away. And it was that word vulnerable that, that really that stuck with me. So based on that, do you think there is ever a circumstance? And again, you, you mentioned about perspective. Is there ever a circumstance or a situation whereby public health interventions should or could uh, supersede basic freedoms and civil liberties? Well, yes. I mean, clearly something like I mentioned Ebola before, and I, I suspect that the playbook that was played out in coronavirus was done after the Ebola um, situation several years ago. Um, I have talked to people who are much more knowledgeable about medical things than me, and they said, actually, governments realised they, 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 they were very lucky that that didn't spread um, more quickly and cause untold damage throughout the world. And so they put a play together for a pandemic, which when coronavirus came along, they said, oh, we've got one of those. But yes, I think um, it, there, are, there are obviously situations where if somebody is going to, I mean, HIV, for example, you'd mm. want to restrict someone's liberty, when, particularly when people would die of it before. Um, and clearly that's a, an offence to knowingly infect mm. somebody with HIV. So I'm not mm. saying that people's liberty trumps, you know, especially you've got to balance one person's freedom with another mm. person's rights. Yeah. But this was a big, big blunt instrument and saying, mm. actually, you know, freedom is, is way down the list of, of things that are important. Um, but we've fought wars, we've gone through, you know, you read books like 1984 and you think mm. actually, you know, you ended up with sort of what's inside your head being pretty mm. much the only freedom that you felt you had at certain points in the last couple of years. We are resilient human beings and I just want to make sure that we don't, um, and I think particularly young people, they have embraced mm. the freedoms that we have again now. Actually, older people, I went to a, a <laughs> dinner in the city a couple of weeks ago and it was like people were like at a school reunion. They were mm. hugging and kissing and just so thrilled to see each other again. But, you know, we really, really, as human beings, we must not do that just um, just just because we can, you know, just because yeah. governments can. They mustn't do it just because it's there. Yeah, absolutely. And so just to, to finish then on a, on a positive note, you, you mentioned there the restrictions have ended. We're, life's more or less back to normal now. and We're much freer than we were. So looking back over the last two years then, do you think there were any good practices or really good ideas that came about because of the pandemic and how we had to adapt to these rapidly changing circumstances that you think actually were really beneficial and we should actually continue with? So what I mentioned earlier, it might seem a relatively small thing compared to all the adverse impacts that we've talked about. But I mentioned earlier, you know, I think a lot of businesses became much more uh, technologically savvy and a lot uh, mm. and, and did things that it would have taken them absolutely years to achieve um, mm. in in days or weeks, particularly at the at the start. Um, you know, we should have been able to work remotely, even if we should be also working in the office. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of things that you know, I mean, even like the school rooms. I mean, I'm a school mm. governor where they did do very well in terms of the curriculum. Um, 
uh, through the pandemic and they've preserved quite a lot of things they learned through that, which actually are very effective teaching uh, and learning tools. So I think there are definitely, we, we, those of us who aren't tech experts, you know, we, mm. we leapt up uh, into the 21st century because we had to. And that's good for the economy, that's good for businesses, that's good for um, the future. Um, so I think we learned that. I think we did also learn, uh, I saw a lot of examples of people being very compassionate, very kind, mm. very aware of di difficulties that people had. Um, I think, you know, I, as I mentioned, I work in finance where, you know, there's been tend to be a very macho culture, mm. often just for its own sake, if you ask me. You know, people, a lot of bravado about working ridiculous hours and being quite mean to people. You know, I just think now there's a there's an element where people see actually we're all, as I said earlier, human beings with the human side and um, and we should nurture that and and watch out for each other. Um, a lot of my colleagues in different organizations I'm involved with, you know, we said we got to know each other better from seeing each other on Zoom in our homes and seeing a dog walk in or a child walk in or husband walk past or something. Um, than we did with sitting next to them for decades in the office. So um, we learned a bit more about our humanity and that's a good thing. I completely agree with that. On one final point then, but when the government's COVID-19 inquiry finally gets un underway and we start to <coughs> learn a little bit more about what really went on. With your breath, huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what do you hope are the main lessons that are learned from it? So I, I do hope, I understand it's ruled out that the scope does include young people um, because my understanding is the initial scope, which they're consulting on uh, right now does not. So I hope that they do, but I hope that we learn how to um, not take that very, very blunt approach mm -hmm. to um, a public health crisis in the future. I hope that we learn never to, to need to do lockdowns again um, and how to balance things and have perspective. Okay, completely agree with you. And Baroness Morrissey, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Nathan. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.